The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. I think there are these key moments in history uh, that basically mark a tipping point when the public can no longer tolerate the status quo. One such moment was the Birmingham campaign in 1963 when Martin Luther King Jr. along with uh, other civil rights leaders organized a nonviolent demonstration against segregation in the South in Birmingham, Alabama. And the nation watched in horror as the police beat peaceful student protesters with clubs and attacked them with dogs. Bull Connor also ordered the fire departments to spray kneeling protesters with water cannons. Many Americans who were previously indifferent to the civil rights movement became outraged at this injustice and demanded change. Another historical moment that's a bit closer to our time was when photographs of three-year-old Alan Curdy were shown around the world. Alan and his family had fled the war in Syria, hoping to reach Europe where they wanted to seek asylum there as refugees. And on September 2nd, 2015, they boarded a small inflatable boat which was way overloaded with refugees. They left Turkey bound for Greece. And reports reached authorities that a boat had capsized. And soon, this young boy's body was found washed ashore on the beach. I've chosen not to show the more recognizable picture because it's just too graphic. Seeing the images of this little dead child on the beach was a gut-wrenching rebuke against the world for its indifference toward this Syrian refugee crisis. But it became a tipping point, raising much greater awareness, along with millions and millions of dollars, to help the plight of Syrian refugees. And I think the killing of George Floyd seems to have triggered another such moment in our nation's history. Although there have been protests in the past responding to other killings, this time, I think as many have noted, it just feels different. There is a rising national sentiment that the way things are is just unacceptable and that something has to change. I shared with you in my last message the intense visceral reaction I had to watching that George Floyd video myself. And I'm sure many of you have had your own responses as well. And yet, how we respond during this national moment, um, it shouldn't be driven by our emotions alone or even by the swell of popular opinion at this time but by God's timeless word. And as I preached two weeks ago, the Bible bears this overwhelming witness to the truth that God is passionate about justice. But what exactly does God's justice mean? 
When we think of God's justice, I think we typically picture God as a prosecuting attorney, making sure that people pay for their crimes. This is about righting all wrongs and getting what we deserve. We, we call this retributive justice or the justice of retribution. And it's undeniably in the Bible. Without this kind of justice, there would be no order in society. And it would be just pure chaos. Paul commands Christians to obey the governing authorities over them. In Romans chapter 13, verse 4, For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. We also see this retributive justice in God's promise of judgment to those who practice evil. Romans chapter 12, verse 19, it says, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. And so that's retributive justice. But if that's the extent of our understanding of God's justice, it is distorted and incomplete. The Bible tells us that there is another aspect of God's justice in which he not only acts as a prosecutor, but also as a defense attorney. This is what we can call restorative justice. It is God's justice at work not to accuse and condemn us, but to defend and protect us. Restorative justice is not about getting the judgment that we deserve, but receiving help from God that we don't deserve because of his mercy and his kindness toward us. It's interesting, rather than seeing justice and mercy as opposites of each other, the Bible describes God's justice as including both his righteous judgment against sin as well as his mercy and grace that restores the brokenness caused by sin. Look at 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If our only understanding of justice is the justice of retribution, then this verse makes no sense. Why does God's justice lead to forgiveness? But John is telling us it is God's restoring justice that led him to forgive us and cleanse us from our unrighteousness. It is because we have experienced this unmerited mercy of God that we can show the same mercy and kindness toward others. Miroslav Volv, in his book Free of Charge, says this, Why do we forgive instead of giving in to vengeance or pursuing retributive justice? which is what in many situations every atom of our violated bodies and our humiliated souls scream after. Because in Christ, God overcame our sin and reestablished communion with us by forgiving sin. We do as God did. We forgive because saving our enemies 
and making friends out of them matters more to us than punishing them. 1 John 1.9 displays God's restorative justice, mending our broken relationship with him through the forgiveness of our sins. But the scope of God's restorative justice extends well beyond simply forgiving individual people of their sins. It also seeks to restore shalom, healing the brokenness of sin and injustice at a societal level so that all people can experience a life of flourishing as God intended when he originally created this world. And so in pursuing this restorative justice, God focuses particularly on those who are most denied it, those who are most vulnerable and easily abused in our society today. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17 to 19 says, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, almighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners. In Egypt. This work of restorative justice is not a burden that God alone carries, but He calls us to practice justice as well. Micah chapter 6, verse 8 He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Proverbs 3 8 to 9. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. And in case we think that these commands are only found in the Old Testament, James chapter 1, verse 27 says, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. In my last message, I pointed out how in the Bible, justice is surrounded by this constellation of other terms like righteousness, mercy, love, faithfulness. And our tendency is to look at these attributes as nothing more than just personal qualities that we want to develop in our own character. But something that we have to note is that all of them describe the way that we treat other people. In other words, they are inherently social in nature. You know, we associate this Old Testament city of Sodom with sexual sin. But when the prophet Ezekiel speaks of the judgment that fell on them, notice the sin that he actually focuses on. Because it's not sexual. Ezekiel chapter 16 verse 49 says, Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. It was a sin of injustice that God says brought judgment upon them. It's not the sexual sin that God highlights here, but the rampant injustices to the ones who are most vulnerable among them. 
You know, here's the thing. You usually don't have to try hard to convince somebody who is struggling with something like a pornography addiction that they ought to feel guilty about it. They feel bad enough without your help. When we imagine the things that grieve God's heart the most when he thinks about our sin, I I think our lists all tend to look very similar. And it's usually a pretty short list. Things like lust or anger or materialism or maybe something like our lack of prayer. But I hardly doubt that any of us feel that much of a sense of guilt because we have failed to practice justice on behalf of others. Listen, I'm not saying that a pornography addiction is nothing, that it doesn't matter to God. But I think we fail to see how much God is grieved when we fail to do justice to others. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 14 to 17 says, Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals I hate with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I am weary, weary of, 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 burden, of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. This is the picture of people faithful in their religious practices and yet blissfully unaware of how much that the God that they worshiped is grieved because of their callous attitude to these injustices that surround them. Amos chapter 5, verse 21 to 24 says, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. We tend to think of righteousness as a very private matter between us and God about personal morality. But in the Bible, the focus of righteousness is often on how we treat other people. In fact, in the New Testament, justice and righteousness are the same word. In the Greek, it's dikaiosune. Faithfulness also carries the same emphasis on how we treat others. Look at what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 23, verse 23 to 24. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. But you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. 
Jesus rebukes these religious leaders because they obsess over tithing every little plant in their spice garden. And yet they have turned a blind eye to the gross injustices that surround them. As Jesus says in his own words, you strain out a gnat, but you swallow a camel. It's like a homeowner that obsesses over which shower curtain to buy for his bathroom, but totally ignores a huge crack that is growing in the foundation of his house. God is saying, you've got all of your priorities upside down. If you really want to please me, practice justice, mercy, and faithfulness toward others. Can I ask you this? By what metric do you gauge how well you are doing spiritually? Church attendance? Faithfulness with quiet time? Avoiding watching certain things that you know aren't good for you? Let me ask you this. Do justice and mercy toward others even factor in at all? Do they matter to you like they matter to the God that you worship? You know, some of you may be concerned that a focus on societal evils like racism and poverty and human trafficking will distract us from our primary call to preach the gospel of salvation through Jesus alone. And some of you also know enough history to know that there have been social justice movements in the past that have been tied to certain theologies that may be different than what we affirm here at ICC. And I do want to affirm that political and social activism alone does fall short of the full picture of the kingdom of God that we see in Scripture. You know, about a decade ago, there was this show on the Discovery Channel called Whale Wars. And it followed this militant animal rights group that used whatever means that were necessary to stop Japanese whaling boats off the shores of Antarctica. And what was so fascinating to me as I watched the show was that despite these, these activists' unquestioning love of whales, the truth is it seemed like they could barely tolerate one another. And maybe they might have saved some whales. They might save some whales if they frankly didn't kill each other first. The captain of the, this vessel that was named after Steve Irwin was Paul Watson, a man who basically, as you watch the show, seemed so full of himself that it wasn't clear whether it was actually about saving whales or if it was him basically just stroking his own fragile ego. And I think what the show whales, Whale Wars really revealed was how social and political activism without heart change can only go so far. You know, Chris Rice, uh, a white professor who now teaches at Duke Divinity School, uh, decades earlier had co-led a Christian community in Mississippi with a black pastor named Spencer Perkins. And the focus of that ministry was on racial reconciliation through the gospel. And uh, Rice and Perkins even uh, co-authored a book together on this topic of re reconciliation among races. But after over a decade working together, uh, they got into this really bitter fight that almost ended their relationship. 
but they were able to salvage it by God's grace. And reflecting on this, Rice confesses in his book, Reconciling All Things, just trying to live peacefully in one neighborhood, in one church, and with one person named Spencer taught me that reconciliation is a long and fragile journey. Here were two men championing the cause of racial reconciliation at a national level, and yet their own relationship with one another almost fell apart. I think all of this underscores that the greatest hope that we have in true change in our world is through the transformation of our hearts that God alone can accomplish. And yet, and yet, my worry is that we have created a false choice here. That we either support evangelism and inner transformation of the gospel or we fight for social justice and societal change. And I believe we must reject this false choice and do both. You know, we may argue that we don't really engage in social justice because we think that evangelism is more important. But I worry that the more important truth is actually that we're doing neither. I worry that after becoming Christians, we've basically detached ourselves from any meaningful engagement with the rest of humanity, frankly. I, the sad truth is that for many Christians, we, we feel nothing toward our neighbors because we don't believe we have anything in common with them. Isaiah chapter 58, verse 6 to 7 says, Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen, to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Did you get that last part? To not turn away from your own flesh and blood. I think there is this dehumanizing otherness with which we can view the poor or the foreigner or those who are of a different race than us. But God calls us to recognize our common humanity, that we are all made in the image of God and therefore deserving of his justice and mercy. You know, uh, let me just address one other concern before I close this message. Some of you may also be wondering, is all of this talk of social justice risking the church becoming too political? And maybe you're even wondering, as Christians, should we have anything to do with politics? I mean, after all, don't we have a higher calling? And I think we do need to make a distinction between being political and uh, being partisan. You know, politics deals with so many areas of life that are so close to the heart of God, like how we treat the poor or protect children or treat foreigners in this country that are seeking asylum. And these are all moral issues that as Christians we can't walk away from just by labeling them as political. We need, in other words, to stand against the injustices that we see in our nation, 
like racism or a disregard for the needs of the poor or the mistreatment of foreigners that are in our midst. And yet at the same time, I think we also need to have a spirit of humility when it comes to what are the solutions to fixing these problems. Because I think that is usually where partisanship enters into the picture. And we have to acknowledge that none of us are smart enough to have all of the right answers. And that the truth is that the solutions are not easy to come by. I think the marches that are happening right now all across our country are important because they are speaking a very loud and clear message to the powers that be that things have to change in our nation. I think it is also helping to sort of cement a national will to deal with these issues. But I think all of us can also acknowledge that at the end of the day, these marches by themselves cannot solve the problems of racism and racial bias in this country. It's only the beginning. And what are the true solutions to the race problems in America? There are no easy answers. And I, I recognize the, the messiness of all of this, that, that we can stand behind the statement that black lives matter, but we also know that black lives matter with a capital B and a capital L and a capital M is a politically active organization that may hold to certain agendas that we may not be able to get behind. But I, I think that despite the fact that it gets messy and that it starts confusing things about which political labels that we are aligning ourselves with, I think it is possible to affirm the simple truth that black lives matter without necessarily endorsing the organization itself. And my worry is this, is that the church, out of fear of being labeled affiliated with certain organizations or certain causes, may shy away from what's happening around our nation. And I would argue that it is political precisely the sort of politicized aspect of it that should cause the voice of the church to be heard in the midst of all of the other voices for us to declare how the gospel speaks to these matters of racial reconciliation. But I also want to say that I'm disturbed that right now I worry that there is this rather disturbing silence of many key church leaders who normally may be vocal about other national issues but are not interested in speaking out about this one. And I worry that as a church, we become known much more for what we stand against rather than what we stand for. And my sincere hope is that in this national moment, the church would rise up to speak a loud and clear voice of God's heart for racial reconciliation and healing in our nation. I think that part of the burden that's placed on us is to educate ourselves about these kind of issues like racism. 
You know, the truth is, I think I received more replies from you guys based on the sermon I preached two weeks ago than I have for any other message I have preached here at ICC. I realize that this addressing this issue of justice has stirred a lot of feelings in many of you. And I'm also sympathetic to the fact that in those emails that I received that there has been a range, a spectrum of responses about how you have personally been reacting to this Black Lives Matter movement. And the truth is, to learn about these things, it can feel like for some of you, like, it's just not worth it. It's a chore. And you just don't want to be bothered with it. But I think it is a burden that we must carry is to become educated about these things and to understand what the history of race has been in this country and what it would mean for us in a very meaningful and wise way to engage in looking for solutions in our nation. I think the truth is that the easiest thing to do is to do nothing. It's the natural thing for us to do is to basically say that I want to stay in my own comfort zone, in this bubble of people that are just like me, who I, de- who I identify with. It's just too messy. It's just too complicated. It's just too much of a headache for me to get involved with something like racism in America. But my sincere prayer is that you would understand this heart of God himself for justice, a restoring justice that seeks to bring about peace through the transformation that he alone can bring in our lives. Let me end with this quote from Ken Witzma from his book, Pursuing Justice. Let's affirm common ground as we seek the ends of justice and love. Let's recognize that sin, evil, and the need for redemption exists in the human heart and in our societies. Let's agree that biblical justice includes society because the whole person matters to God, body, soul, mind, spirit. And if the whole person matters to God, the whole person must matter to us as well. Can we see the logic and biblical, biblical mandate of justice in society without needing to agree with every political mechanism that is used to promote it? Arguing against social justice doesn't make the world more just. If you don't like the way justice is being politicized, go and do better. The answer is not to run away from justice. The answer is to give your life away. So that is my sincere prayer for us as a congregation, is that in the midst of all the other activities that we do, that one of the things that ICC would stand for is justice, to seek justice in our nation, in our community, to be active in carrying the burden of God to bring about justice to those who are most marginalized, most abused, most downtrodden, the ones who cannot speak for themselves and who have no leverage in our society. And I pray that that would be something that you are absolutely convinced is on the heart of your God, the God that you worship. Let's pray. Father, that is my prayer for all of us this day.
that we as your people would represent your heart of justice in a broken and fallen world. And in the chaos of all of the voices that are crying out about what needs to happen and what the solutions are, I pray that we as your people would speak the clear voice of your gospel and to let them know that there is a Savior who loves them and who desires to bring about a peace that can radically transform our societies and experience the shalom that you desire for all of us. For it is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now receive the benediction. May you do what is good and what the Lord requires of you to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. May you speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves and defend the rights of the destitute. May you speak up and judge fairly, defending the rights of the poor and needy. Amen.